Welcome to the Elk Talk Podcast with Randy Newberg and Corey Jacobson. Presented by the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation. The goal is what little you and I know about elk hunting, we share with people. I've got an elk building, it's like 120 yards away, what do I do? First off, the thought would never cross my mind when an elk being 120 yards away to call anybody <laughs> on a cell phone. <laughs> All elk. All the time. Only elk. Only elk. Well, it's us having conversations. So we usually go down some rabbit holes. But if you hunt with Corey Jacobson, you will find the landscape is full of rabbit holes. We're just going to make this up as we go. And you look at it like, oh, that's a target-rich environment. But if you're trying to single one out, a solo target there is much easier to go into than a, a big group. We record everything, so there's no BS and no lying, no faking it with us. <laughs> Did we hit the record I button? I forgot to hit the record <laughs> button. If you want to know something about elk hunting, this probably isn't the podcast to listen to. <laughs> Should we give them a list of all the other podcasts wow. where they might learn something? <laughs> The Elk Talk Podcast is brought to you by the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation, ensuring the future of elk, other wildlife, their habitat, and our hunting heritage. To become a member, go to rmef.org. And the podcast is also brought to you by OnX Maps. And with OnX Maps, you can know where you stand with the most accurate hunting GPS tech on the market with land ownership maps that work offline. Go to onxmaps.com and use promo code ELKTALK and you're going to save 20% when you sign up for an app membership at onxmaps.com. The podcast is also brought to you by Gerber. Uh, go to gerbergear.com and learn about the knives, the vital, the big game vital, the Gator Premium, all the things that we use when we're out in the woods and not just knives, but also some really cool multi-tools that they have. And we have a promo code for Gerber as well. Just use the code ELKTALK to save 20% on your orders at gerbergear.com. And we are also brought to you by Rocky Mountain Hunting Calls. And Rocky Mountain Hunting Calls is the original designer and inventor of the pallet plate diaphragm that's completely changed the way elk calls are made and used. And to find out more and to order your elk calls, go to rockymountainhuntingcalls.com or buglingbull.com and use promo code ELKTALK and you're going to save 15% on all of your elk calls and elk call accessories. The Elk Talk podcast is also brought to you by GoHunt.com. Uh, go to GoHunt.com and sign up for the Insider. The Insider is changing how hunts and hunting information are found. No doubt about that. Use promo code ELKTALK and when you do, when you sign up for the Insider, you're going to get $50 of store credit, mad money, in their gear shop. Lastly, the University of Elk Hunting online course is a proud partner of the Elk Talk podcast. And within the University of Elk Hunting online course, you're going to find nearly 60 chapters organized in 17 modules of elk hunting instruction aimed at making you a more successful elk hunter. From planning and e-scouting to calling strategies and packing, every imaginable elk hunting topic is included in the online course. And regardless of your previous elk hunting experience or success, I'm confident the University of Elk Hunting online course will make you a more confident, more successful elk hunter. Just visit elk101.com and use the promo code ELKTALK to save 20% when you sign up for a membership to the University of Elk Hunting online course. And with that, Corey... 
we are ready to get into it. Let's jump into it. Well, folks, thanks for being here. Uh, I'm in Montana, and Corey, you sheltered in place down there in Idaho? Yep, still uh, still here. Only one in the office, so uh, while I'm not an essential business, uh, according to the government, I am uh, the only person in the office, so I still get to come into the office and work. I was going to say every day, but I, I won't kid anybody. I don't come in every day. Yeah, well, I I don't either. Um, we've been, I, I don't know what to make of this, Corey. We've been working remotely now, me and my eight employees, for almost two months. And they're getting more work done remotely than when we were at the office. I I'd, talked to another friend yesterday that said the exact same thing. They have a large company with you know 30 plus employees and he said their productivity and efficiency and revenue linked to that has increased dramatically with this and so they're actually reevaluating how they're going to do their business going forward and uh, likely take some steps to do more remote working from home because people are so much more efficient they're happier they're getting to spend time with their family and so yeah he's he was saying the exact same thing. Yeah, I, my employees would probably attribute it to me not being there telling them what to do. <laughs> <laughs> he did say, you know, that they took a poll and of, I think, 36 employees or whatever, all but two of them said they preferred working from home. And the two that didn't were just, you know, they were extroverts. They needed that social interaction. Yeah. And he, he said that that, uh, that efficiency is probably due to not being distracted at work by everybody there coming and, you know, having meetings and coming and chatting and being disrupted in the middle of a project and yep and we're at least seeing that and that's uh i guess something i have to reassess i'm not yeah. sure, sure what we'll do maybe i'll sell my office building <laughs> <laughs> you'll probably have to spend most of what the profit from selling the office building is on getting a, a new internet wire ran to your house to be able to Prob up. Probably there's for anyone who thinks that rural Montana is the high tech capital of the world. Let me re reassess your opinion on that. <laughs> I live four miles south of Bozeman and there's a dead end road here that I'm on. And I think there's one strand of copper DSL that gets pushed from a box about four miles away. <laughs> <laughs> and so when me and and all my neighbors are tapped into that, you, you can almost hear the vibration of the p copper wire. <laughs> <laughs> and it probably doesn't help that that copper wire terminates on a clothes hanger, and that clothes hanger is what you consider to be your modem. Yeah, and, and there's two Eurasian collared doves on that coat hanger right now <laughs> cooing to each other. <laughs> I'm not, uh, I'm not painting a very pretty picture. Well, I, uh, I can assure you that our internet connection here in rural central Idaho is no better. And we've talked before about the party line concept that, man, you get four or five people jump. I mean, even in our house, if everybody's on their, on their devices at the same time, we can't stream anything. We can't get pictures to text through or anything so yeah it's uh, the, the party line concept is still alive and thriving in our society 
Yep. It's just in a different form. But if I got to also give the caveat, if the audience hears me doing something in the background, it's because my wife left me here at the house with her dog that is 17 years old, deaf, blind in one eye, and by all indicators may not be around by this time tomorrow. So, <laughs> or at the end of this podcast, yeah. <laughs> and, and so, uh, she always leaves the house. She said she had a, some doctor's appointment this morning, but I'm thinking to myself, you know what? The doc, the clinics are closed for the most part. I think she's making this up, and she just wants to be out of the house if the dog tips over, so she can blame it on me. Probably woke up this morning and noticed the dog breathing heavier and said, you know, today's a good day to not be here. Yeah. I'll leave Randy with this responsibility. Exactly. So this little 10-pound lap dog thing, thats it's a dear little dog, but it's, it's definitely given me a different idea of whether or not I want to live to be 90 years old. <laughs> I don't. <laughs> if it's if human aging is anything like this dog, I, I don't know what this has to do with elk hunting. But it's, I was just going to say, <laughs> its hips are so bad that in the morning I have to massage its hips for about two or three minutes before it can walk real well. And then when I take it out to do its morning business, I have we have this vest that it's it wears. And you have to stand above it and hold the leash really tight so when she's pooping, she doesn't fall back down into her poop because her hips are so bad. I'm like, oh, this is wow. not this is not the picture I want to be 30, 40 years from now or whatever. Okay. It would be. So the dog's 17? Yeah. And what is isn't it seven years? Something like that. For a dog for every human year or vice versa or whatever. But yeah. that puts that puts that dog at like 119 years old equivalent to a human. Oh yeah. I think she's right up there with Noah. She's gonna start building an ark here pretty soon. I think. <laughs> she, she's just about old enough to start building an ark. <laughs> Uh, I guess if we live to be 119, I would imagine somebody's going to have to massage my hip to get me up and walking in the morning as well. So Yeah, I think someone's going to have to massage my brain to get it to function in, <laughs> in not too many years. Uh, oh, I'm sorry, folks. It's, it's This shelter-in-place stuff, I'm, I'm starting to get a little stir-crazy. I, I haven't been outside doing hardly anything other than keeping my dog from falling in or you know what and uh i am going bear hunting though montana we're reopening the state uh starting monday very cool yeah but that has been the uh the blessing for us is you know with our stay-at-home order we live in the mountains so we've been we've been doing more camping and backpacking the last month than we could ever possibly do with the kids still being in a structured school uh, platform and and uh, just it's been pretty awesome really yeah well I wish I could say I've been doing that I had this thing called tax season that took me <laughs> up until last week and even even though the IRS extended the deadline to July 15th I don't do tax returns after April 15th I fish and I hunt so I'm like, you know what, I got the few little projects I still 
have my fingers in. I got to get these done. I, I'm not going to disrupt my hunting and fishing on account of this. So I was the same way. I pushed my accountant really hard to make sure things were done on the normal schedule and not the revised ones. So. Well, we have a whole list of <clears throat> questions that I emailed you uh, that came from the Elk Talk podcast website comment page. Um, we sort through those and try to pick the ones that are narrow enough and had been given enough thought that we can give a good answer or make up a good answer. <laughs> don't, don't set us up to fail before we even get started here. That's yeah. Well, we will but, definitely make up a good answer, but it might not be a good answer. Yeah. But before we get into that, I was going through my email feeds last night and this morning, and I got one from the Elk Foundation about a project they just did in the Black Hills of Wyoming, which most people think the Black Hills are South Dakota, and yeah, they mostly are, but on the west side, the Black Hills come into Wyoming, and they have what's called the Grand Canyon of the Black Hills there. I'm trying to remember what river or small creek that is, but uh, anyhow, RMEF worked with a landowner and the Wyoming State Land Board, Wyoming Division of Forestry, uh, Wyoming Game and Fish, Nature Conservancy. Who, who's this timber company or land company they worked with? Uh, it's listed here somewhere. Uh, Mosky Land Corporation and the National Wild Turkey Federation, yeah, Bass Pro and Cabela's. And they all came together, and what they did is they acquired this piece of ground that's critical habitat, but also provides 4,350 acres of new access and provides improved access to a bunch of checkerboard and other parcels of 8,000 more acres of adjacent public land. So wow. That's why we are big fans of the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation. Just that and many other awesome reasons. Yeah. And if anyone's interested, I know we, uh, we're in weird times, and I, I hesitate to, to talk about anything that requires finances, but there might be some listeners who are in a situation where they could donate or help out, uh, upgrade their membership or whatever, uh, if you can't completely understand that, especially in these times. But for those of us who can, uh, the nonprofit conservation groups we all love so dearly, in this case, the Elk Foundation, they've had to cancel all their banquets, their fundraisers. So if you're thinking about how you can help, uh, think about them. Uh, they could use some help right now. So. Totally. Yeah, no, I had a, a conversation yesterday with a friend about business and the economy and everything. And, you know, there's a lot of a lot of individuals struggling with employment and finances and a lot of businesses that are being forced to, you know, as non-essential not be open right now. And, and, uh, you know, there's things in place that help some of them, but some of them aren't getting that help. And, you know, I think the, the things that we forget about are the, you know, maybe the luxury things, you know, when, when we're doing well, it's, it's a luxury and we're able to contribute to a conservation group. But when things get tight, that's kind of the first thing that, that we uh, cut out. And those conservation groups that are so vital to the things we love to do can really struggle during times like this. So yeah. I think that's a, a great reminder that, 
Hey, we're all, we, we love elk hunting. We love the, the direction, the future of elk hunting's going, and we love the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation. But uh, if there is an opportunity for some of us who have been fortunate and blessed through these challenging times to, uh, to step up a little bit. And like you said, if you aren't a member, we, we've stressed that a lot. If you aren't a member of the Elk Foundation and you're an elk hunter, you need to be a member. And if you are a member, I think there are other opportunities to upgrade membership or just make a contribution and, and do things to help out. If, like you said, we aren't able to attend banquets. We aren't able to go and, and win a rifle, but I know that they are uh, continuing to do some giveaways and sweepstakes and different things. And there's yeah. ways we can still continue to be involved and, and help them out. Yeah. And that's one of those weird balances. I, I don't want to, have anyone think that the expectation is in this difficult time someone might have that you you don't pay attention to your own priority because we're most interested in everybody getting through this totally but like you said there are some of us who you know either through age or fortune of good luck or whatever where we can do a little more right now and that it's mostly a call out to those who are in that situation you know, yep. just, just a reminder if you're so inclined. Absolutely. So, but w- w- you want the first question, Corey? Yeah, let's, let's jump in and okay. make up some good answers. <laughs> so the first question, this person said that they're interested in finally taking a mature bull. Uh, I, I don't know if that means they've mostly shot immature bulls or cows or what, but the way the question is kind of worded is for the best odds at me finally taking a mature bull, would you rather hunt or suggest, I guess is what they're asking. Would you suggest that I hunt a limited entry tag every five years or an over the counter tag every year? Yes. <laughs> I like Next that. question. Next question. <laughs> uh, good. I'm, I'm glad you answered it that way. Because it's yeah. not a it's not a binary either or you got to do one or the other in most instances you can yep. do both yeah I know and I, I think, think you know it's it comes down to yes a limited entry the right limited entry hunt is going to give you a better chance at a mature bull there are some limited entry hunts that are you know you're still they're they're given a lot of tags out they're still limited but they give a lot of tags there's going to be a lot of elk maybe, but the, the age class isn't there to shoot a mature one. And then there's some limited entry hunts where that's what they're managing for is the age class. So there are a lot of mature bulls. So when I say the right limited entry hunt, don't think that you're going to go and necessarily apply for a, a limited entry hunt in Idaho that has 50% draw odds and go there and see a bunch of mature bulls. That's just not the case necessarily. Um, But applying for that right limited entry hunt will often give you a better chance at killing a mature bull. But the caveat to that is if you've never hunted before, if you've never filled a tag before, you can go to the absolute best unit in the state of Arizona and be very lucky to shoot a cow or be very lucky to shoot a little raghorn five point. So that's where I answer yes to both of them. Go and hunt over the counter every year, gain that experience, make mistakes on those hunts, so that when you do draw that that limited entry hunt, you've got some of those mistakes and that learning curve under your belt and you can make the most of it and 
and be able to kill that mature bull? Yeah, I, I, that's why I thought it was a good question. I agree 100%. If somebody has the budget, pick another state and start building some points and have either your home state, if you live in a place with over-the-counter elk for residents, or Idaho, Colorado, you know, Oregon, wherever you might be uh, close to, use that as your go elk hunt every year option. And sooner or later, you'll, you will get a mature bull. And yep. I, <laughs> and I, I, I think there's, there's a lot more that goes into that question. What do you consider to be a mature bull? <laughs> yeah. You know, last year <laughs> I made my mind up that I wanted to hunt mature bulls in, in my home state of Idaho. And we got on two of those bulls that I considered to be very representative, mature bulls, very excited to, to hunt them and call them in. Uh, I won't go into all the details about missing the one and somebody else <laughs> shooting the other and all of that. But I had people, you know, I, I kind of made it, I stressed the point that I'm looking for a mature bull, not because I'm a trophy hunter, but because I have the extra time. Donnie shot his bull on opening day. We had scheduled 10 days to hunt. Um, so I had the time to, to do that and to focus on that. And I had some people that, you know, questioned are you a trophy hunter? You know, why, why would you pass up these smaller bulls? And then other people that question and said, you really think that's a mature bull? He probably doesn't even score 300 inches, you know, yeah. come down to where I hunt if you want to see a mature bull. And so it's, you know, we all have a, a def, different definition of what a mature bull is. For yeah. me, I think it's just a, a representative mature species for the area we're hunting. And yeah, there's 340, 350 inch bulls, maybe you know, I, I use plural carefully there because there might only be one or two <laughs> in the area I hunt. And I would love to run into them. But the reality is I might hunt five years and never see a bull like that or never even know one exists in these areas. Uh, so I, that's not the that's not my focus. I'm just looking for that representative herd bull you know, that's going to be a probably six and a half to eight and a half year old elk and might only score 290. Yeah. You know, just a solid six point. And so that's that's important to also define before you go into that, because as I mentioned, there's some limited entry hunts, some controlled hunts that are going to provide you with opportunities to shoot a six point. But the top end of that might be 310 or 320. So if you're in, if in your mind a, a mature bull is 360 inches, now you've got to start looking at some of the top five or six units in Arizona or, you know, things like that. So it's important yeah. to define what a mature bull is. It's important that you've got experience hunting elk before you go on that. You look at, I've, I've done seminars and stuff in Arizona and people come up and they say, yeah, when I, when I draw my tag, I'll get interested in elk hunting more and I'll start, you know, I'll, I'll sign up for an online course or I will buy my gear or I'll start shooting a bow or I'll buy a new rifle at that point. And it's so sad to watch them wait 15 or 20 years to draw their once-in-a-lifetime tag now and go on their first elk hunt on that hunt and come back having eaten that tag because they just didn't have that experience and uh, the overall hunting experience to be able to make the most of that tag. Yeah, well, you and I are lucky we get to travel places and hunt different season dates and terrains and environments and settings. So that gives a, a little bit different view of, of 
of elk hunting compared to when I was the weekend warrior here in Montana. But the weekend warrior guys who do the over-the-counter hunts or maybe it's not even a weekend warrior. It's somebody who says, hey, I'm leaving the Midwest. I'm coming out for my five days of elk hunting or whatever it might be. They figure out some really cool tricks to how they learned this behavior of the elk or how the elk are using that little bit of the terrain that I might just completely overlook and be in too big of a hurry that I don't give it the effort to understand that exact little spot or that small mountain range and how the elk move and every little thing about them. And so those guys who can consistently do that on over-the-counter tags, it just it amazes me how they figure it out. And I always pay attention when those hunters who are consistently successful on these over-the-counter public land hunts, when they start talking, I shut up and I'm doing a lot of note-taking. <laughs> <laughs> and, it, and it is. We, we sometimes miss the forest because of the trees. Literally, like we live right here and sometimes we, we miss that big picture. We get so stuck in our little, um, the experiences we've had that have created our style of hunting or the, the preferences that we look for, that we sometimes miss obvious things that sometimes we even preach and teach about. <laughs> sometimes we actually miss them because we are so focused in on, on our, our experiences in the past. And yeah, there are people that can come into this area and it, it always amazes me how somebody from out of state can come in, they can find an area right here in my backyard and go into it and hunt and be successful when I sometimes struggle to, to even find the elk in those areas. And so it's, yeah, there's, you can never, never quit learning and, and never close your mind and think that you've learned enough or that you understand enough because man, there's, we'll, we'll spend the rest of our life and never even scratch the surface, I don't think, when it really comes down to, to what there is to be able to learn and the knowledge there is to be able to gain. Yeah, and the, the point of that comment also was that, kind of tying back to your first comment of hunting elk every year, even if it is over-the-counter where maybe the age class isn't what it would be in a limited entry unit, you can't put too much value on that it's it's hard to overvalue the experience and knowledge gained from hunting elk every year yep so oh. so yes to, to summarize that mm -hmm. question the answer yeah. is yes yeah the answer is yes <laughs> yeah should you do do one over the other yes <laughs> both both yes uh, i like it uh, that's gonna you know i'm surprised that in today's world of binary code of computers that they well i i'm not surprised that questions are often posed in a binary either or sense but i think the that the answer to every binary question should be yes all of the above yeah screw up the computer <laughs> screw up those zeros and ones <laughs> so that nobody can function and operate I, <laughs> I i i this is again i'm i'm so full of tangents today i was talking to someone the other day and we were commenting on how <clears throat> the 
the world likes to bring everything to an either-or decision. It's easier that way. And I think that started happening in the 1970s and 80s when all of us kids, they started teaching us the binary number system because it's what computers ran on. So we just think everything's got to be an either-or. And and just to quantify that, I think you might be referring to all of the kids who became accountants because I, even (laughs) as an engineer, (laughs) I didn't learn binary numbers. Really? No. Wow. Okay. I I took one class that they started talking about binary numbers, and I said, that is not the direction I want to take my education. Well, now you've just popped my bubble, Corey. I've been living in this little universe. I thought everybody had this experience I had of uh, being taught completely irrelevant things throughout my entire education. (laughs) Well, I think we've all been taught completely irrelevant things, just not all necessarily binary numbers. So you you might want to explain what a binary number is, because I'm guessing that there's a, a percentage of people listening that are like, what? What's he talking about? Really? It's like, if you ever studied like base five number system, we're we're a base 10 number system. Uh, But binary is all zeros and ones. Those are the only two numbers. So those are the only two options. It's either a zero or a one. Yeah. So uh, Google it. (laughs) Google's your friend. (laughs) The Elk Talk podcast is not the place to come to learn about binary numbers. Uh, Yeah. People are going to be bringing their their children to listen to the podcast like, hey, we have to do this homeschooling (laughs) thing, this remote learning. I want you to listen to this podcast because you're going to pick up some really, uh, I I almost said some really good advice on elk hunting, but I can't even go that far. You're going to hear some elk hunting talk and you're also going to, learned about math today so (laughs) well we're going to go on to item number two which under the binary system would not be item number two (laughs) what would it be item number one one uh depends on which way you approach it uh item number two is probably going to be another as oh see how long it's been since i did that i think it's going to be another zero but Oh, well, (laughs) let's get to the question. Uh, What factors do you consider when you are choosing an over-the-counter unit in Idaho or Colorado? And are the factors you consider any different for a rifle hunt versus an archery hunt? Mm. Wow. That could take up the rest of the podcast. Yeah. That's very open-ended. What factors do you consider when you're considering an over-the-counter I'll, hunt? I'll, I'll give the I'll take the rifle part of it. How's that? And I'll apply it to Colorado because this coming year is going to be my first year of actually elk hunting in Idaho. So I can't speak specifically to Idaho. But Colorado, what, uh, you look at the over-the-counter units, I don't know, there's... 90 units or something for rifle, second rifle and third rifle. And which of those units do you decide, all right, I'm going to go plant my stake right here. And for me, this is kind of general, but when I start narrowing it down, I go out to the Go Hunt Insider and they have all of these over-the-counter units and I'm looking at harvest rates to start with. And that's all in there and I can sort it by harvest rate and okay i look at that and then i can go out to the colorado parks and wildlife website and download a bunch of their information reports 
about the herd trends. Is the, is the trend for that herd growing or shrinking? What's the cow-to-calf ratio doing? What's the bull-to-cow ratio doing? And see where those trends are. Are they, are they flat or, or going up, or are they going down? Um, and I would say those are the, the primary things I look at. And a lot of times I'll end up with three, four units that are pretty similar. Then I get out my Onyx and Google Earth and I start looking at the aerial and say, all right, which one of these places layout that is how I like to hunt? In other words, the landscape. is. Do, if I like to track dark timber, which I don't, I'd go find the spot with most dark timber. If I like to glass like I do, I would say, okay, where's the places with a lot of elevation I can get up and I can be looking and glassing in these avalanche shoots and other disrupted broken landscape areas. And that's probably the place I would pick. And I know that I'm probably going to have some company, that there's going to be some other people who did the same exact thing I did. Yeah, that's, you know, you you look at the information that's available, and we get that question all the time, you know, what, where, where do you guys think the line needs to be drawn as far as how much information you share? You know, how what, what are we doing to the sport of hunting, really, by sharing all this information? Are we shooting ourselves in the foot? And, you know, at the end of the day, I think you and I are both 100% on the same page that no, we're not at all. This information will help us, but we still have to do the work. Yep. Um, but with that information, there is a chance that, that yes, you're going to see some company out there in those places for the same reasons, that they have access to that information. Um, and, and similar to you, you know, I... I start with statistics and, you know, there, and I think that's probably what that question is referring to. What factors do you consider when you're trying to choose a, a unit? And you and I both get hammered all the time with people sending emails and messages. You know, I'm going to Idaho for the first time this year. What zone should I focus on? Yep. Or what unit <laughs> would you suggest me going to to have the best chance of killing an elk on my first hunt? We can't answer that question. That's just, it's, it's unfair to put us in a position to have to answer that for, for a number of reasons, but we are giving you all the tools you need to be able to answer that question for yourself. And right. when we talk about Go Hunt, it's because we use it. It's not because Go Hunt is a sponsor of the podcast that we feel obligated to talk about it. We believe in it and we use it, and that made a you know a, a good partnership there for the podcast platform. But when we mention it, it's not to to uh, give you a hard sale on a sponsor here. It is a hundred percent because even myself living in Idaho, yeah. I I use Go Hunt filtering 2.0, and I am continually looking at different units. And I'll give you an example, you know, to, to answer the question and, you know, what you did there is very similar to what I do. And I'll use Idaho archery. You know, you did Colorado rifle. I'll use Idaho archery as the example. Go Hunt just added all of the zones to, to their filtering 2.0. And when I say that, it's important because when you come to Idaho, you have to select a zone to hunt in. You can't just buy an over-the-counter tag and bounce around to different areas or pick an area. You have to specify what zone you want to hunt. Some zones only have one unit in them. Some zones have five units in them, so it gives you a little bit more flexibility depending on, on what zone you pick. 
but Go Hunt has that now. So now you can look by zone. You can also continue to look by unit, which is what I do. I don't necessarily go by zone because some units are managed a little differently. Some units have different terrain within the same zone. So I am looking by, by unit. But the first thing that you can look at on filtering 2.0 is trophy potential. Mm -hmm. So this goes back to our first question. If you want to kill a mature bull, find the units that have the higher trophy potential. And in Idaho, you know, if I slide that scale down to 260 or better, about 80% of our state shows up as an option on Go Hunt filtering 2.0. As I slide that up, I'm going to slide it up to 330 inches. There are only five units available. Yeah. And knowing those five units... I would say that your potential of shooting a 330 bowl in there is probably not any higher in those five units than in several units, uh, several other units. There yeah. may be a, a higher overall age class, um, but there's, there's going to be a lot of other factors come into that. Harvest success, um, bull to cow ratios, other things that, that contribute to your overall success. So I'm not just placing all of that priority on trophy potential. I'm probably going to set it at about 300. And that in Idaho, I still have over 50% of the of the state available to me um, filtered out now. Draw odds are, are 100% because I just picked archery over the counter. Public land, I'm going to put it to 50% of the unit is public land and only about six units dropped off because Idaho has a lot of public land. Yeah. Probably the most important factor to me is going to be harvest success. Yeah. And now that I have these other factors in there, I slide harvest success, I'm going to go up to 50%. 50, zero like units. five, zero? Five, zero. And, and just to illustrate, there are zero units, which we okay. would expect and hope for. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> but now I can dial down. Now I'm going to 40%. There's still zero. Now I'm going to 30%. Again, this is over-the-counter archery by unit. Yeah. I'm at 30%. There's still zero units. Yep. Okay. Now I get down to 20%. And there are only one, two, three, four, five, six, seven units in Idaho that give you a chance to shoot a 300-inch bull. And when I say a chance to shoot that, just a mature, there, there are mature age class bulls in these units. With 50% public land, there are only, what did I say, seven. Seven units that have 20% success rate or better. That's seven more units than I thought would have that criteria yep. met. That's, so here's, that's, that's here's, a pretty high threshold. So here's the crazy thing. Now there's, there are other factors that come into that. Percentage of bulls that are six point. Okay, some of these are less than 20% of the bulls that are killed are six points. So 20% success, that means one out of five hunters or 20 out of 100 hunters are going to fill their tag. And only 20% of those 20 hunters are going to kill a six point. So only out of 100 hunters in there, four people are going to shoot a six point bull in that unit. Yeah. Okay, that's so that's a, another factor I look at. There's some of them that are over 50%. Really? Wow. There are some that have bull to cow ratios as high as 36 to 100. There are some that are as low as 16 to 100. Um, so a lot of other things that, you know, there's a, there's a whole bunch of factors, but I look at all of those factors. And I don't look for the best in each of them because the one that has the best chance of killing a mature bull probably has a low success rate probably has a low bull to cow ratio, probably has a low overall elk population. 
Um, so I'm going to, I'm probably going to place equal importance on all of them and find that one unit that allows me to hunt a mature bull that has decent harvest success, that has decent bull to cow ratio, that has a decent percentage of six point bulls killed, that has good public land access. Those are the factors I'm looking for. And when I do that, it usually comes down to just four or five units. Yeah. And those four or five units that I end up with might be completely different than four or five units that somebody else comes up with using the same factors, just putting a little bit different priority on what those factors are and, and what order they, they prioritize those factors. You get an A-plus for that answer, Corey. Really? I get, I get a C-minus. You get an A-plus. <laughs> so I'll, I'll just, you know, to expand on that a little farther, these seven units, looking at them, three of them are very incredibly difficult access areas. Okay. Hard, hard areas, high elevation. Uh, the terrain is not super conducive to elk hunting. Uh, it's steep. It's rugged. Another one is a desert unit, which again is not conducive to archery hunting. It's it's tough. You know, you're, you have no cover. They're out on the flats in the sagebrush. Um, the other three units are a combination of that: tough terrain, rugged country, limited access, and a couple of them have really, really high number of hunters. So that's the other thing you can look at. Idaho Fish and Game gives you statistics on how many hunters hunt each unit and how many days they spend in each unit. Yeah. So once I dial down to these six or seven units, I'm going to start looking at those statistics as well and say, okay, this one only had 18 hunters in it last year. That's why the success rate is 50% because only nine people actually killed an elk. You know, do I want to go in there when there's only a population of 300 elk in the entire unit? Yeah, there's only nine hunters, but there's not a lot of elk. Or do I want to go into this unit that had 1,800 over-the-counter archery hunters, but the elk population's over-objective by 30%, and there's a lot of country there, and I can hike and get away from, from some of those hunters. Probably neither of those. I want to find something in the middle. I want to find something where, you know, there's a moderate number of hunters, there's a moderate number of elk, there's good number of mature bulls. And so a lot of factors go into, into that. And I can't just pick one and go off of it. I have to pick multiple and then start shuffling the priority of those factors around until I settle on, hey, this, this meets all of my expectations and I'm going to go here. Yeah. And it, it is very individual related to what that person's looking for what their capabilities are physically stuff like that i like you said we often i don't know how many times a week i get the question what unit should i apply for what should i do here and that when i do have time to answer it's usually about seven or eight questions back to them before i even answer it is Okay, where do you live? What's your elevation where you live? What kind of physical condition are you in? Do you have any impairments? Do you don't do you have a, a distaste for hunting where there are grizzly bears? I mean, the list goes on and on and on and on. Yep. And the reason I ask so many questions is because I understand how personalized the response is. That what what is the unit? I would be more successful hunting or more effective in hunting is completely different than someone who's 30 years old and in way better shape than I am. It's just a reality I have to assess. So 
my answer might not be the right answer. Yeah. It's only right for me. Yeah. And sometimes and it's it, even wrong for me. <laughs> and it's like gear, you know, I, we get emails of what boots are the best or what this is the best. And it's, it's a really, it's a, it's a personal choice of what fits you the best. And I use boots as the example because I know from personal experience how hard it is for me to get a boot that fits me good. And that has nothing to do with the quality of the boot. It has nothing to do with the the brand of the boot necessarily. There are a pile of good boots out there, but I have to find one that fits me because it might be the highest quality, you know, 10 people might say it's the best boot they've ever worn and they might be 100% right for them. But if it doesn't fit my foot and it gives me blisters and hurts my feet, it doesn't matter if it's a quality boot. It's not the right boot for me. And so you have to find that perfect fit for you. And it might not be the perfect fit for everybody. And it definitely isn't when it comes to finding that unit. Well, hopefully that gives the the listener who submitted this question uh, and others who are pondering the same thing a lot to think about. And to know that there is no right or wrong answer as to what unit. It's just look at these factors, prioritize them in the way that fits you best, make your decision and go hunting and do it. So this person must be a, a, pre, uh, a long-time listener to our podcast Um Question number three is, in the past, you've talked about moving from spot A to spot B or C. Um, How long do you work spot A before moving to spot B or C? And does that change in archery compared to rifle season? I can. Yes. I, yes. There, there <laughs> yes. we go again. And Corey's <laughs> answered everything is yes. So for me... Uh, anyone who's watched our e-scouting episodes uh, on our YouTube channel, you know that I usually have A, B, C, and D as general areas. And then within each of those areas, I have what I call spot on the spot. In other words, where I'm going to go to glass and do whatever. And for me, rifle hunting is mostly a glassing game. And then once you find them, Stock. I mean, that's, you know, the old spot in the stock is why it's called that. Uh, I'll work a spot pretty long in rifle season before I move to spot B or C or D. In archery season, I, I'm just mostly on a walkabout trying to listen and, and cover ground. So I don't, I don't hardly even stay in spot A as you would think about it as spot A. I'm just, you know, I go there to start in the morning, but I have no idea where it's going to take me in archery season or as in rifle. I kind of plant my, my butt on the ground and this is where I'm going to be all morning. So I don't know if you have a different approach to it, but yeah, and I think, you know, that's, we'll go back to you answering the, the question on the rifle side and me on the archery side. Um, if I'm rifle hunting, I've learned I have to be more patient in an area because the elk are pressured. They're not going to be moving. It's going to be harder to locate them, but that doesn't mean they aren't there. And so I've found I've had to be a lot more patient than what I'm used to with archery. With archery, 
the, the benefit is it's usually during the rut and you can locate them with a bugle. And so if I go into an area in the morning and I'm, you know, it's an area I've identified as a spot I want to hunt and I get in there and I'm not seeing much sign and I'm not hearing any bugles, I leave it. And I don't necessarily ever go back, you know, unless I have a reason to go back. If I see sign, but I'm not hearing bugles, maybe I'll go back. But if I go in there and I don't see any fresh sign and I don't hear any bugles, I move on. And it can be as quickly as an hour or two on a morning hunt. If I hike in a mile or two, I get to a basin where I feel there should be elk and an elk should be bugling. If there's not, I'll turn around and go back to the truck and drive 10 miles to spot number two. And I might still have time to get in a morning hunt or a midday hunt there. And I'll at least go in and hike in, look for sign, recognizing they might not be as vocally active during the middle of the day. So I might wait there until the evening and see if anything responds. If it does, I'll hunt them and I might be back there in, in the morning. Um, but if I don't get a response that night, I might be on to, to area C by the morning of day two. Wow. And so I do a lot more. Um, I don't, and I used to, I used to go and just pound an area, just saying, I know there's elk in here. I've got to get one to bugle. They just aren't bugling today. Tomorrow they will. And I've done that on, on limited entry hunts even before and almost shot myself in the foot that I just get stuck in that rut. And so now I just, I don't, I realize that there's an elk bugling somewhere right now. I go and find that elk right now. And I will, I'll literally burn through eight or 10 areas in a week hunt um, until I find that area where that bull is fired up on that day. And uh, so, yeah, I, I will bounce from spot to spot. And it's, you know, sometimes it's a mile away. Sometimes it's 10 miles away. Sometimes it's 50 miles away, depending on the, the uh, what flexibility I have within the hunt that I'm doing. Um, but yeah, I, I have multiple, multiple areas marked and I'm not afraid to, to hit them all. Yeah, well, uh, to give it some time context, I would say that in rifle season, I go into my spot A and I'm going to be there for a full morning and a full evening. Sometimes if, say, I see a bunch of hunting pressure that I didn't expect, I might say, oh, this isn't going to work and I'll pull out by noon. Usually, I, I'm there because I've done a ton of e-scouting. Maybe I got there a day early and I could look it over and say, yeah, spot A is, is still what I thought it is. I'll give it a full day. And if I don't see anything, and I've, I've laid optics on those hillsides for the 12 hours or 10 hours of daylight, then... The next morning, I'm probably in spot B, and that afternoon, I might be in spot C. And so, usually, my A spot, I give a little bit more uh, time before I, I pull stakes. And I know somebody's going to watch or listen to this and say, Hey, Newberg, I saw one time in Arizona, you guys sat on the same rock for five days in a row. Yep, we did. And the reason being is in scouting, we saw some really nice bulls in there. And every day we saw at least one bull. We just never had one get in a situation where we could make an effort on it. Uh, the wind was wrong or it was moving or whatever. So uh, it, the answer somewhat depends. But if you're not seeing anything, I guess for me, I'll give my spot A in rifle season pretty much a whole day. And then after that, 
I'm a little bit less patient because my time frame, my window of time is is shrinking. And so I'm probably going to give a morning or an evening to each of the next spots before I move on. Oh, let's see. This person uh, defines a difference between training and practice. Uh, They said, I view practice as range time to become more proficient. I view training as preparing for real-life scenarios, whether archery or rifle. Um, and that they've, with that preface, they kind of made it a question of, what do you do that is your training rather than your practice? Um, I, I can answer, and I've answered it many times for me, is, uh, as it relates to rifle season, uh I'm not talking about my physical conditioning here and working out. I'm talking about preparing for, all right, the time is at hand. I've got 12 seconds to pull this off. I don't have time to adjust my sandbags and do a perfect range and a wind doping and everything else. I, I got to do this quickly. So... I zero my rifles in absolute perfect conditions because I want my zero and my knowledge and understanding of what my load is doing. I want that to be a, an, a non-variable. And if I can do it in perfect environmental conditions, the variables for the most part are out. I know exactly where that point of impact will be when I pull that trigger. Once I get that set, I love to go out in windy days, rainy days, cold days, hot days. And I don't just shoot from the bench. I force myself to shoot a bunch of offhand and cockeyed weird positions, concocting different types of rests from my pack or from a post or whatever it might be. And I'll do some burpees or I'll go run around a little bit or something to try to uh, replicate the fact that I might have just had to run up a ridge to get in a shooting position. I well, still, wait a minute. Wait a what? minute. What? Did you say you would do some burpees? I have. Don't don't tell the world. I'm pretty. I, I look pretty funny doing burpees. I but. was just gonna say I would almost pay to see I, you I, doing burpees. Like it's just having not seen you do burpees. I'm not saying you couldn't do them or wouldn't do them. Mm-hmm. I just, I want to see you do a burpee. Oh, that's, well, I, what, I, what, what can we do to get you to post video on Instagram of you doing a burpee at the oh, range? Oh, you, you should see, I'm, I'm actually quite the acrobat, Corey. No, My, I know. I, I am 30 years older or 25 years older than any of my crew. <laughs> I, I'm the best at doing handstands, cartwheels, backflips, I can do the splits. I, I I I make them look like a bunch of old curmudgeons. But uh, so so you just you just dug yourself deeper here. You can do the splits. Yeah, can't you? I can't even touch my toes most mornings. No, come on. <laughs> I certainly can't do the splits. Really, Randy? We're we're gonna have to start seeing some video here. No, I I can I can do all that stuff. Man, so but now you're making me feel bad. Well, 
I've been one of those guys who does stretching exercises every day for the last 55 years. Well, maybe 50 years. <laughs> but uh, so doing a burpee, yeah, I can do them. That. Uh, all right, someday I guess we'll just have to film all these things now that I, I pronounce to the world that I'm yep. I'm the Jack LaLanne of the hunting world or something. I don't know. <laughs> uh, there we go again. Right? If you're in, if you if if your parents or your mother forced you to sit down on the couch while she watched TV in the morning uh, in 1972, after some game show was over, it was Jack LaLanne. He was the, well, I can't even say Richard Simmons. A lot of people don't even know who he was in the 1980s. Uh, who, who's the modern-day workout person? Who's the, <laughs> I, I, I think the question is, who isn't now? Oh, that's true. Yeah. I'm not. I, I am not. Well, evidently you are. You're doing burpees at the range. You can do the splits. You're like this closet workout person. Yeah. Well, I'm not a, a workout. Don't confuse stretching with working out. Unless they're considered two of the same, I, I don't consider them two of the same. Burpees but. are a CrossFit exercise, Randy. You're like a CrossFit workout no. person now. You're doing no. burpees at the I'm range. I'm an accountant, Corey. <laughs> I drive a desk for a living. But anyhow, I do those kind of things so that when... I'm back to this person's point of that's what I would consider my quote unquote training rather than just pulling the trigger, you know, sending rounds down range. Yeah, that's practice. And, and I do a lot of that. I mean, a lot of it. But I, I do believe in what this person is talking about of how do I get myself ready for that, you know, whatever. 10 second, five second opportunity might be that I've worked three days to get. I want to have practiced those things enough, trained enough, let's put it that way, because he's making a distinct, he or she's making a distinction between training and practice. I've trained enough that when that happens, I'm going to be ready. And uh, I don't like offhand shooting, but I practice it a lot. Um, the, you know, one time I shot an elk at 190 yards off end after having just run about 300 yards. I airballed right over his back the first shot, but I was pretty proud of my second shot. Uh, but had I not practiced that stuff, I probably would have never taken that shot. So here I am. I'm interchanging his words of practice and train. <laughs> well, and that's that was the very first thing when you read the question. I thought this is this is getting too complex for me. Like, and I, I say that in that I don't differentiate between practice and training. I just prepare. And I think that involves... Now you bring a third word into this. No, I think what it does is it combines the two into one because preparation involves making sure that my weapon is sighted in. That, that's the first step of preparation. And then replicating... Um, situations that I'll experience in the field is the next step of preparation. And so in my mind, I don't break it out because it, my mind is just way too simple to, it would get confused if I tried breaking it into two parts. So I just say, I need to prepare for elk season. 
And I do that by making sure my my weapon is dialed in and then making sure that I am shooting the weapon once it's dialed in in those situations. And I 100% can see where the question's coming from, that practice is being proficient with a weapon. Training is putting yourself in situations that you will experience in the field. And I think that both of those fall under preparation and they go way beyond just the weapon. I mean, that's gear, that is physical conditioning, that is uh, all of those things. I think you could say practice, you know, in, in this question's context, practice would be spending time in your garage with a weight set and doing you know, push-ups or sit-ups or pull-ups or running or whatever, training would be putting your pack on and going to the hills and climbing a mountain, um, which for me, both of them are important and are a part of my preparation. Um, you know, when it comes to your gear, I think researching gear online and then buying gear based on, on your research would be the practice. The training would be going out and using it before season Again, both of which are part of my preparation. So um, I, I think both are important. I think practice is the first phase of the preparation. Training is proving what you've done, proving your practice in the field before season so that when it comes time for the performance, which is when you're in the field during the season, you are prepared and confident. Yeah, this is this is a, a question that as you were giving your reply came through my mind. So this is Randy's question and somewhat of an observation or a personal account of what I do, but I'd be interested because you're so much more experienced as an archer than I ever will be. When I get to my setup, okay, I've left the trailhead in the dark. I grunt all the way up to my glassing knob and the sun's starting to come up. I wonder if people think I'm just up there daydreaming because I'm not. But what's going <laughs> through my head is every possible scenario of where a bull may appear and what I'm going to have to do based on wind. Am I going to have to run over there 10 yards or am I going to have to circle around and go 300 yards? If the bull does this, what's going to be the shot angle? What's uh, How quick is it going to unfold? How fast is it going to happen? My mind is just, I don't want to say it's stressful at all. It's more creative time of thinking. I, I am, I'm the optimist that at any point in time, an elk's going to walk out and I'm going to see it somewhere. Uh, I just, it's part of what keeps me mentally engaged is, mentally preparing for whatever scenario might come up so when it happens i've already thought that through and a lot of that's anticipation and when i watch you in archery hunting your anticipation for what the setup is going how that's going to unfold is way way out in front of where my anticipation is 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 your mind going through all those things when you think they're that there might be a setup? It's not. And that's, you know, I, I think that's the hard, the hardest thing that I had to learn to do was understand what I was doing and be able to explain it because it comes so automatic and it's so spontaneous sometimes with archery hunting because 
I don't have those those downtimes where I just sit and think in my mind and play out those situations. You know, my focus is finding elk and being on the move continually. So I don't have, you know, I don't hike to a spot and sit and wait like like I would if I was rifle hunting. I'm covering country. I'm hiking hard. I'm, you know, pushing myself endurance all day long. And then when I find one, it's an instantaneous, spontaneous uh, reaction to where that bull is. It has to be immediate. Okay, the bull is right over there. The wind, I already know the wind is going up. I've got to get around above him. There's, you know, quick analysis of he's not going to come across this draw because it's so thick. I've got to get on the same side of the draw as him. So I've got to go quiet now and get over there and surprise him. Um, all of these things are happening almost instantly in my mind. And I just take off running, <laughs> doing them. And it's, it's, it's not a process where I stop and think through all those things. It's just, you know, I think from doing it over and over and over, um, it just happens. And that was really for me when, when I started getting into doing seminars and things like that and teaching some of these things, I had to stop and step back and be like, okay, what is the process? What am I actually doing in these situations and breaking it down? And of course, being an engineer helped with that to, to uh, take it from in the field process to breaking it down to something that could be explained and then implemented and for me it, it's not I don't have that time it just it's more of a natural reaction I know I have to get the wind good I know I have to get in a situation where that elk's going to be comfortable coming in I know I have to be in an area where I'm going to have good shooting lanes and so my mind kind of just it's kind of a shotgun of all of those things at once of you know it's check 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 yep we're good let's go huh uh, and I've seen you in action. So when you say running, yes, you li- Corey literally takes off running, and <laughs> old guys like me are dragging along behind. Uh, but it, and, and that's part of why the the question or the comment thought was going through my mind as you were talking is I've seen it, and I've seen the difference in how you you don't hesitate. You just here's what we're going to go do. Whereas Coming from more of a rifle background, I'm sitting there trying to evaluate every single variable. And in the archery world, it's so up close, so quick that you don't quite have the time to. If, if you sit and consider every variable that you had the benefit of considering for the two hours sitting on your rock behind a spotting scope, that, that's all compressed in about 20 seconds in an archery setup and that's that's probably the hardest conversion for me when i go from rifle hunting to archery hunting and and it's the same for me on the flip side it's so hard for me to shut you know just to shut down physically and keep my mind occupied to be able to sit in one place because i just i get so distracted mentally i just want to get up and go I, i would rather go and try to find an elk on foot during a rifle season when they're pressured and hunkered down and in you know sanctuary mode knowing that my chances are incredibly low then sit there and try to occupy my mind for 12 hours hoping an elk will step out on (laughs) one of the six hillsides that i can see even though the odds of that happening are so much higher and my success rate would be so much higher i just have troubles switching those gears to to do that 
Yeah. Well, one one thing that passes the time is go with somebody who's about 20 or 30 years younger than you. And there, there's a couple things. One, you feel like you're the old guy of the group. So you sit there and you give things like marital advice <laughs> and you just make all this crap up. You act like you're the expert and everything. And they're not old enough to know that you're BSing them for the most part. So that passes some of the time and some of the mental boredom. Uh, And then also, if there is the need for somebody to go stomp through the dark timber or make a big loop, you usually nominate the younger person to do that. So. Yeah, and I usually volunteer for that. Like, you know, I just wonder if we get up on top of the mountain there and then come down the ridge, if if we yeah. jump something, they'll probably run out on that hillside. So you want to sit here and I'll go make that, that trek up there? And, yeah, that's and I'll, I volunteer to sit right there. You know, yeah. I'll sit here and make sure this rock doesn't go anywhere. Or I might just volunteer to go shed hunting in October or November just to see if the off chance there might be a shed over in that dark timber. Uh, and yeah, I, I guess I, the, the point of that is to illustrate how different the, the mental challenges are between rifle hunting and, and archery hunting. Yep. It is two different disciplines. They absolutely are. Yeah. Uh, let's see. I think we might be able to cover one more. Uh, this person is an archer, so I'm I'm going to let you do this one. Uh, they're talking about archery setups, and then someone had a similar question. Uh, one person said, "I hunt northern Idaho. How do you predict where to set up?" in the thick brush of northern Idaho. And then scanning through, I found another question that said, I hunt mostly open country of central Montana. How do you set up with no cover around? And I don't know if there's an answer to either of those, but if you got any experience or input, throw them out there. Can I answer yes to those again? You sure can. That's a, that's a word. <laughs> don't, don't deviate from your pattern now, Corey. Yeah. That's that's always my thing when I'm taking a multiple choice test. If I don't know the answer, if I answer C for everything, the odds are I'm going to do okay on the ones that I don't know. I mean, I'm going to, I'm going to get more than 0%. I'm going to luck into a few right answers. So that's, that's my go-to. That's, if how yes, got, yes. that's, that's how you got through freshman psychology. Huh? That's how I got through four years of college. <laughs> Uh, no, so I, I do have experience in both of those situations. I grew up in what I would consider the, the southern part of northern Idaho, so I do understand brush and, and how thick it is. Uh, having hunted uh, the, the coast for Roosevelt elk, I was very quickly reminded that I know what thickness is, um, yeah. and it's tough. And so the question, how do you know where to set up? It's it answers itself. You set up where you can, and it does no good to set up where your visibility is four yards. You just aren't going to get a shot. That elk's going to come into twenty yards, and he's going to stand there, and he's not going to be comfortable to come into four yards most of the time. So you've got to find an area where you have a shooting lane, and that shooting lane might only be twelve yards or fifteen yards, and you have to make sure that elk is going to be comfortable coming into that shooting lane. 
Mm-hmm. In my experience, if you get into one of those areas on a, on a ridge top, it's going to open up a little more. The north face is going to be just a tangle of alders and just a mass of brush, and you can't even hardly get through it. And the elk can get through it, but they aren't going to be comfortable coming through it and then all of a sudden popping out in the open. They're going to they're gonna feel like they're exposed, and they're probably not going to do it. So you've got to get into those situations where the elk's going to be comfortable coming into your setup, which means he's probably not going to come through that north thick tangle. And then he's you've got to have shooting lanes so when he does pop out, he doesn't get wary and stay back in the brush. He's going to feel comfortable stepping out in an area where you have that shooting lane. So when I say all that, it's, it's much easier said than done because a lot of that country, you don't have that luxury. And those elk are gonna live on those north faces because that's where they're safe. They can hear anything that's approaching them. They've got an escape route and they know that danger is not going to be able to keep up with them as they go through that thick stuff getting into the, into the next drainage. Um, so they've positioned themselves in that tangle for a reason. So it can be tough, but you've got to, you know, you've got to find those openings and those shooting lanes. And so it's not a matter of uh, finding the perfect one. It's just a matter of finding one. And <laughs> there might only be one. There might only be one. And you've got to make wow. do with what you have. Uh, when I was younger, I pressured, you know, I pushed the envelope way too much. I tried to make things happen in that thick stuff. And I can't tell you how many standoffs at 15 to 30 yards I had with elk where all I could see was the tips of their antlers moving or all I could see was the black of their legs as they walked through the alders uh, and never got a good look at them, never had any kind of a shot opportunity. And then once you realize that, you've got to be more patient. You can't get in there and aggressively call them in and say, I called in 20 bulls this season and never got a shot. That's a very real situation in places like North Idaho, where you can call in 20 elk and never get a shot because you never see them. So in that thick stuff, you just, you have to be a little more patient. You have to find that needle in a haystack of a, of a good setup and things just have to come together. You have to find the elk that wants to cooperate. You have to find the setup. You have to put the two together. And, you know, a lot of times in that thick stuff, you don't have the flexibility to, to be mobile and to move around the elk and to get the wind in your favor. You're kind of trapped there in that setup once you, once you pick it. So definitely a lot more challenging. Yeah. Well, and then on I, the flip side. No, I, go ahead. I purposefully don't hunt that thick a country. Yeah. <laughs> and honestly, there there is there there's a there's an allure to it. There really is. You know those bulls that are in there. You just envision them being those big, massive black antlered bulls that yeah. stay in that thick stuff and never get seen by anybody. Um, and to some degree, there there is some of that. But it definitely adds a a level of difficulty to an already difficult venture. Uh. So the flip side, it's open, broken, just rolling prairie country, say, of central Montana. Yep. And I would say that's probably even more difficult because, you know, elk use use their sense of sight there. And they don't necessarily use their sense of sight to detect danger. They use their sense of sight to confirm what they're hearing and seeing. So if you're trying to call in an elk in the wide open, that elk's going to get to 300 yards and think to himself, I should be able to see the elk that's bugling or cow calling out there. And they're going to stand there on that high little knob and just watch. 
And very rare, well, I won't say very rarely, but it's going to be very difficult to get that elk to commit to just come walking into the wide open until they see an elk. And even when they do see an elk, they're going to stand there and look at it and say, why aren't you coming to me? And they're going to a lot of times hold their ground. So that open country can be hard. Uh, you can spot elk and you can see elk all day. Uh, but to call them in in that, op that wide open grassland and sagebrush can be really, really hard. Uh, but I, you know, decoys can work. But again, decoys are not the answer every time. They, they work sometimes and sometimes they don't work. So if I was hunting that wide open stuff, that would probably be a go-to tactic if I wanted to call in an elk. Uh, but then you've also got to use that terrain very wisely uh, as far as you know, just giving them a glimpse of the decoy over the rise of a, of a little knoll and then dropping the decoy. So they see it and they have to come closer to get a better look. Um, you know, I think having a two-person setup is even more critical here because, you know, you're calling, you're trying to get that elk to come in a little ways, knowing he's probably not going to come all the way into to a solo hunter's range. You've got to pull that elk into a, you know, a shooter that's set up out in front of you. So two-person setup, decoys can be efficient. Using the terrain is going to be very important. Um, but again, for me, it's the same answer as you. I don't like hunting the thick brush. I don't like hunting the wide open. I like to find a, a good medium. And sometimes, you know, it will be north face timber with a wide open hillside on the, on the south exposure where the elk are going to be out feeding and then they're going to retreat into that timber. So that way I can use optics. I can uh, see more elk and make a game plan and then get into the timber and be able to call them in knowing kind of where they went and what they're doing, what their habits are. Well, that's when I bring my rifle to a knife fight. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I say that somewhat tongue-in-cheek, but this year I did draw a limited entry permit in Montana, out in central Montana, where it's quite open. And I could go there and archery hunt, and I might, but I'm probably going to show up with my rifle and uh, take advantage of that. Yep. <laughs> I know that's... Uh, I've shot some, I've arrowed some elk in some pretty open country, but uh, there I usually wait for them to bed. Yep. Uh, when, I, when I approach them then, I'm, I'm not calling them in uh, or trying to call them in or, try, or scaring them off with my calling. <clears throat> what I'm usually doing is waiting for them to go find, they will show you where there is some part of the terrain that has some, topography that might only be 20 feet in elevation but it creates some shade or it creates a little bit of cover where you're like whoa that's where he's hanging out and then i use that to get as close as i possibly can so yep. and I, you know we've used this example a couple times but our hunt together in new mexico yeah we tried and tried and there are a lot of other factors than just open country uh, that were against our calling strategy but you know, those elk, when we finally went and decided to spot and stalk, they were out in the grasslands. You know, unfortunately, we had some terrain topography to to break up enough to be able to spot and stalk. But we had basically zero chance of calling those elk in out in that open. Yeah. They just, they can get on a knob 150 yards away and stand there and look at you. And you're just out in the wide open too. You have nothing to hide behind. And visually, it's just very difficult to do. Fortunately, we found that one little juniper tree that had some shade and the bull bedded under it. And that juniper tree and one piece of sagebrush provided enough of a, of a terrain breakup that I was able to slip into 
whatever it was, 30 yards and, and get a shot at the elk. But yeah, um, yeah I think in those situations, especially the open terrain, you've got to adjust your tactics. And calling is probably not a very effective tactic in the wide open. Well, hopefully that answers enough of the questions that uh, people feel they got their their money's worth. We do have a money we we do have a money back guarantee on this podcast, right? Whatever, Absolutely. Whatever somebody pays to listen to this podcast, we for the life of your pod of your listening, we will give you your money back. Man. How's I've not happen? heard I've not heard that quality of a money back guarantee offered anywhere that I can think of. No, I, I offer it on my YouTube channel all the time. Someone will come up and say, you know, I that, that, I really wish you would have done this differently. I'm like, well, I got a money back guarantee. <laughs> you know, whatever. You it, happy. Yeah, whatever it costs you to watch our YouTube channel, I'll give you your money back right now. They look at me like, well, it's free. Like, well, yeah, yeah, exactly. That's why I'm willing to give this money back guarantee. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, I think there are some, some really good questions and hopefully I wouldn't say that there were some really good answers, but hopefully there were some answers that at least spur some thinking and, and uh, if nothing else, maybe spur some more quality questions for people to send in. And, you yeah. know, I, I, I will never proclaim to be an expert elk hunter, and I've been blessed to, to hunt elk now for over 35 years, but I know I don't know everything about elk hunting. In fact, I know I don't know a lot about elk hunting, um, but hopefully our experiences together combined and our, our platform to be able to share those experiences helps other people at least you know, generate ideas in their mind or in some way become a better elk hunter. And that's, I think that's our goal at the end of the day. Yep. That is the idea. And the one thing that I think is helping this process is when people leave comments and you'll tell them where they can leave comments, but when they do that, when they come and ask these questions, we have, I bet you in our folder right now, we have more than a thousand questions in there. And I go through them and try to get the most recent ones. I think the the listeners sharing their questions or their ideas or, or you know, whatever's on their mind is really helpful for us because it's somewhat reflective of if one person submitted that comment, there's probably hundreds of people who are having the same mental discussion themselves. So where can they leave those comments? They can just go to the website, which is elktalkpodcast.com, and just click the contact uh, tab at the top, and it'll open up a little box, and you can enter your name and email address and ask a question, leave a comment, hit submit, and it comes to both Randy and I. So um, Randy said, you know, we've got a thousand or so emails. There's at least that many in there. And just to reiterate, we read every one of them. It's, you know, yeah. they aren't just going, falling on deaf ears. We read them. We absolutely can't respond to every one of them, obviously, but we do read them. And we try to pick out the ones that are either, that we're seeing a lot of, uh, ones that we feel are really good questions that our listeners can benefit from. Um, so if you don't get your, your question answered on the podcast, don't take it personal. Don't, don't think we're yeah. trying to avoid it or we don't think it's a good question. Um, we're just, we have to select which ones we do and how it 
kind of fits into the timing of the year, how it's going to fit into our, our overall audience. And yeah, so no hard feelings. Yeah. Good way to put that. So, well, I think we're going to wrap up. My wife's dog is still sitting here looking at me. So <laughs> it, it survived the podcast without Excellent. any tragedy. Uh, I'm hoping my wife gets home pretty soon. So if this thing does tip over, I'm not to blame for it. But <laughs> I, yes. I'm sure if, if this dog dies, whether I'm here or not, I'll get blamed for it. I mean, that's what husbands are for. Yeah. I mean, whether anyone knew this or not, when they took their wedding vow, what the fine print when you sign the marriage license is you are the final recourse for all that goes wrong. <laughs> if you look in the fine print somewhere, that's that's in there. So just accept that, guys. You know, and, you know, uh, the best the best piece of advice I ever got before I got married, Corey. An old boy, Don Bowman, he was working at the sawmill with me. Uh, I was working at a sawmill, going to college at the same time, trying to date my wife at the same time. Uh, And I told him that we were going to get married. And he pulled me aside a couple of days later. He said, son, Randy. And, And he was, I'm about 24 at the time. He's about 65. He said, you know, I've worked with you now for three years, and I've, I've got to know your soon-to-be wife a little bit. You should proceed with this in mind. There is nothing she could not replace by noon tomorrow. Behave accordingly. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Yeah. I don't know whether so, to take that as an insult or advice, but... No, he, he, he just said, look, you don't bring as much to the table as you think you do. <laughs> Everything you bring to the table, she could replace by noon tomorrow. So that, that's, that's, great. Kind of, that's kind of the approach that I've taken. And so having already passed my 31st anniversary, I think that advice that Don, rest his soul, uh, it, I think it was good advice that he gave me. And if that means I get blamed for this dog dying, you know what? It just, uh, she could replace me by noon tomorrow. So <laughs> <laughs> I just take my lumps and accept the fact that, hey, us guys, we're not that smart. So this is, this is the, the, the lot in life that, that I've been cast. And, and I smile and say, you know what? You darn right, honey. It was my fault. You smile and say yes, dear. And yeah, yep. I'll go. I'll go bury her in the backyard here with the other two dogs. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Randy, uh, we uh, we probably need to uh, stick to giving elk hunting advice and not okay. marriage advice. But, <laughs> <laughs> but hey, I've made it to thirty-one years, Corey. So there's got to be some validity to what advice something. I might give. There is. I wonder if your wife would be willing to give marital advice. I've asked her many times, yeah. and she refuses to be on video or on a podcast. But one thing, I told her that I had a 25-year money-back guarantee on this marriage, and once she passed the 25-year mark, that guarantee is gone. You're just stuck with me, darling. So don't yeah. be asking for your money back at that point. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> All right. Well, let's, 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 what do you let's, say we end this before let's wrap I that up. 
Yeah. yeah. I, I'm sorry, folks. No, I, I've good. just been shut in and sheltered in place for too long. So <laughs> I haven't had a I haven't had a haircut for two months. I, yeah, I, I look. I, yeah, I look like the 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 absent-minded professor or something. Man, my hair is like all over the place. But I'm getting a haircut in three days when the state reopens. So. Wow. Yeah, this is the benefit of my haircut. I get a haircut every two days, whether I need it or not. Really? Yeah, I just grab the razor, take the old razor, and shave it. And wow! Yeah. Wow. wow! Right now, I look pretty rough. My wife, she did, she walks it over and looks at me with my hair all frizzed out and going different directions, and she just starts laughing. She doesn't know who to feel more sorry for you or the seventeen-year-old dog. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, well, thanks, well, Corey. Thanks, yeah. folks, for being here. Yep, thanks, folks. And if uh, if you can, to uh, help us continue with our good ratings on the podcast, just leave us a review. And uh, if you're on iTunes, leave a review. Wherever you're listening, leave a review. And uh, the more stars you can give us, the better. And it helps us continue to grow and continue to be able to provide you with all of this high-quality uh, <laughs> money back guarantee money back guarantee entertainment so we do uh, we do appreciate the the uh, the listening we appreciate the comments we appreciate the support and uh, we'll be back here soon with another episode thanks folks